Welcome to Dangerous Christianity with Dr. Christopher Rodkey, where we explore new ways of being Christian that go against the grain, stands up against the church when it's evil, speaks truth to power, and reclaims the Bible as a radical message of hope, liberation, and justice. Dr. Rodkey is pastor of St. Paul's United Church of Christ in Dallastown, Pennsylvania, and leads the sacred profane community, a post-faith gathering for those seeking to nurture a literate and misfit geeky, sometimes sneaky, as well as a queer-affirming and beer-affirming spirituality. All information mentioned throughout the program is listed in the show notes. And now, please welcome Dr. Christopher Rodney. So in 1 John chapters 1 and 2 so far, we've heard about how there was disagreement in the early church about whether one could be perfect or not, whether one could be pure or not, and whether knowing Christ as individuals elevated one's ability to know the truth. This question around the ability to have higher knowledge or higher purity was complicated in some ways because they were dealing with people who left the church believing that they had higher knowledge or the capacity for a higher purity before God or uh, some sort of higher understanding than the others. And they likely believed that some of the leaders were superior to others because of this knowledge or purity or special information or new revelations were given to them alone or above the others. Those who remained behind in the church were theologically dealing with what it means to believe that Jesus calls us to perfection and the base reality that we can't be perfect, while also dealing with the inner turmoil that the church of broken uh, relationships, uh, broken relationships back in the church, and the loss of trust and disappointment that people got angry and left when others wouldn't accept their superiority. What we see then is a little bit of a contradictory or even paradoxical way of thinking about God and what it means to be human in 1 John. Jesus, we know, calls us to be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect in the Gospels, but we know that we cannot be perfect. And at the same time, those who think they're perfect believe they do not sin. But we also hear in chapter 1 of 1 John uh, that those who believe they do not sin deceive themselves. The spirituality then of the early Christian faith is one that is in the tension of perfection and imperfection, of being called by God and yet being human and not seeing being human as a failure, but simply a reality. That is to say, being human is messy, and it's imperfect. It's about making mistakes. It's always being in need of improvement and also accepting the love of God and the example of Jesus, because we are in need of love and are called to learn how to love more expansively and how to love more radically, because that's exactly how Jesus lived and was. That's how Jesus loved that we always have to move to bigger and better understandings of love. So now we enter uh, the end of chapter 2, beginning in verse 15. These are the words from the NRSV Bible. Do not love the world or the things in the world. The love of the Father is not in those who love the world. For all that is in the world, the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, the pride and riches, comes not from the Father, but from the world. And the world and its desire passing away, but those who do the will of God live forever. Now, these lines are sometimes quoted out of context to suggest that Christians should not be concerned with things of this world. It's often a convenient 
excuse or argument that anything that a Christian doesn't want to deal with, a social problem, is a thing of this world, and I'm not going to put my mind on it. But what's really being talked about here is the origin of the things that you love. This isn't telling you to deny food or to deny water or to deny relationships or pleasurable things, but rather to place one's true and highest desires in things that are not of this world to ground your experience in this world toward the end of things beyond this world, to serve a higher purpose. These lines are also speaking to complacency, which, again, the longer I'm a pastor, I realize is one of the biggest temptations that leaders have in the church, to just accept things the way they are. You can only serve one master, but that master has also given you the things of this world to enjoy. If you share them, you reflect the kingdom of God. If you hoard them, and you place your hope in things which decay over time, you place your hope in things of this world. I also read this as a slight against those who believe that they're spiritually superior to others. I mean, that's the point of this book. Namely, that people who believe they're spiritually higher than others, and I guess I run into those people in in my line of work, but they often tend to base their legitimacy on how many people they have, how much money they have, how many things they have. If you've ever read ancient literature, these words from the Bible sort of echo the philosopher Aristotle a little bit here, who in his Nicomachean Ethics speaks about how many believe that money or power or status are the things that we most often strive toward as something that is good. But if they really make us truly happy, they shouldn't be taken away so easily. Not only are they things of this world, but they can be taken away from you very easily. Money, status, and power can be taken from you. Continuing into the next section, I want to make a few statements about the words in the next section because they're sort of controversial. I'm trying to teach them within the context of this whole book of the Bible and the time it's written. First, we hear John writing to the church, calling them children, and by children, as we've been discussing, uh, John means the people and the leaders together. They're all equals as children of God. Second, the early church believed that Jesus was coming back very soon, but by the time 1 John was written, they were getting impatient and were beginning to think that they misunderstood this this, uh, message of Jesus returning very soon. This is actually the subject of quite a bit of the second part of the New Testament, asking why isn't Jesus coming back? What's taking so long? So here we hear about the Antichrist, or more correctly, that there are many Antichrists. I don't want to tell you what to think about these words before we read them. I don't want to poison the well, but I want to do this. I want to make clear that the word Christ means anointed and that the children who follow Jesus were said to be anointed, which is to say that they are Christ's when we gather in community. So consider this as we hear the words anointed and Christ, moving into 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 21. Children, it is the last hour. As you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But by going out, they made it plain that none of them belongs to us. But you have, but you have been anointed, that is, chrisma, by the Holy One, and all of you have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and you know that no lie comes from the truth. 
These little subtleties of language are here in this passage of Scripture around the word Christ. The word in Greek here for Antichrist is based on the word Christos, and the word for you are anointed is charisma. It's a verb. This is to say that there are people who call themselves Christ, but act like they are as good or are surrogates of Christ themselves, or believe that they are. But at the same time, we in the church together are anointed, charisma, those who are and have received the anointing because Christ means anointed. So here again, we see that what makes you anointed is assuming that you are not the anointed, but rather the anointed assembled in the name of Jesus in community. The Antichrist, or those who are Antichrist, as said here, then claim to be anointed, and they may be part of Christ by virtue of being human, but they have deviated from the fullness of Christ while claiming to be the pinnacle or the highest example of Christ. They might belong to Christ, but they no longer belong to us. So if you deny the community or believe that you can do it on your own, you're denying Christ even while you're emphasizing Christ or believing that you are emphasizing Christ. I hope you're following this, moving into chapter 2, verses 22 through 25. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Everyone who confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he has promised to us, eternal life. Again, believing that you can be perfect is a denial of Christ and is a denial of God the Father. Even while having the names and words of Christ and God the Father on one's lips. If you confess that you're part of Christ, but you alone are not the Christ, um, and even if one says that they alone are not the Christ, if they act as if they are, or make claims epistemologically, or saying that they are higher than other people, saying that they have something Christic above other, others in the Christic community, they are, or they are again, using the words that we heard early in 1 John, making a liar out of Christ. This business about the Antichrist isn't so much about pointing to one single Antichrist as the antithesis of everything that is good about Jesus, but as a more crafty or sly uh, person or groups of people who claim to know Jesus yet act as if they are above God by separating themselves from the community or believing that they have received a special revelation or special knowledge that makes their salvation greater or makes their prayers and rituals better. And John adds here that we can be assured that we are offered eternal life, which is to say that this is not something we should fret over. Now, what happens to us when we die is something that is cause of anxiety and fear, obviously. But, and John is not saying that it's wrong to experience fear, but rather we should not define how we think about Christ and community based upon our fear of death. If we start the conversation about our relationship with Jesus, with how do I get into heaven, or what doctrines must I believe to live eternally, we're missing the point, just like the lawyers who are asking Jesus the same questions in the Gospels. This is to say that our salvation is a done deal. It's a satisfied matter. And salvation is a done deal because 
Jesus has already died for our sins. This isn't about gaining a better place at the table in heaven, although the early church did believe that in the immediate time after Jesus' return, the church would be grouped with Christ separately from everyone else until heaven and earth collide, but that's only a temporary thing because they will know what's going on and everyone won't. This doctrine about the end of the world here is a discussion for another time, but the point is that just as the Antichrists are not the Christ, so also are the Antichrists outside, so also are the Antichrists not outside of God's love. People might tell you that you have to believe a certain way uh, or you're going to hell, but John is saying you can be assured by the simple promise of Jesus. That promise should be a cause of joy rather than exclusion and division and anxiety. Continuing in verses 26 and 27. I write these things to you concerning those who would deceive you. As for you, the anointing that you received in him abides in you, and so you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about things and is, a, and is true and not a lie, and just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he is revealed, we may have confidence and not be put to shame before him at his coming. Now, this bit about not needed uh, to be taught anything is a little tricky. In plain English, it seems what, is, what it's saying is that if you've accepted Jesus, you don't need to learn anything else. But that would betray the spirit of what's being said in the rest of this letter. In fact, the more genuine you know Jesus, the more one must admit how much I do not know the answers and how much more I am in need of learning. The Greek in this sentence in verse 27 is a little weird, and our English translations, uh, contemporary ones, are are vague because the language in the Greek is vague and it's weird. The anointing that you have received from him abides in you, verse 27 says. And so you do not need anyone to teach you. That last part, and you do not need anyone to teach you, is referring specifically to what is in the first part of the sentence, which is the anointing that you have received. Now this is confusing, but this is to say you don't need to keep, this isn't to say that you don't need to keep learning or that you have no need to learn, but following the promise of Jesus to have eternal life, you can be assured that you are anointed in Christ in your baptism and in your participation in the communion. Do not ever doubt that you, you deserve and are entitled to a place at the table of Jesus for no other reason other than that God loves you. And no matter who you are or what you've done, you're chosen like God chose David out of the fields. You're chosen like Mary called by the angel of, at night. You're chosen like the disciples standing on the shoreline hearing the message that God loves each of them and knows them by name. You do not need to be taught and formed and discipled, but we all have a lot to learn. We can all do those things too. You don't need to be given more requirements to your church membership or more legitimacy in the eyes of Jesus if you haven't accepted that Jesus promises us to be present with us as a community and that he will come again. You don't have to do those things, but if you are part of the community, you will want to do those things. And we hear again, abide in Jesus so that we might be able to stand upright when we encounter Jesus again. We're going to meet Jesus at some point in the future, whether it's in this life or the next, and however that will unfold has yet to really be revealed to us, which is important to note here because we're talking about Christians who believe they have seen or understood a higher revelation of or seen everything there might be to know. Our own encounter with Jesus in a full and actual sense is still something that is unfolding and looming in the future. The Holy Spirit 
you can be confident, though, is here as a guide for us to lead us in our best path to walking with Jesus. Abide means live in. It also means living with, like a home, and tolerating others, like living in accordance with something, like a living in accordance with the law or abide by the law. Abiding in Jesus means we need to tolerate things we might not be okay with and putting ourselves aside for the greater good of community. If we make mistakes as a community, we're doing it with the interest of Christ and understand Christ as our center. If we're abiding with Christ, we're welcoming the person or the ideas that challenge or comfort or complacency and drive us to think bigger and love bigger. Now let's finish up uh, this next section of, of Scripture, keeping in mind that the tension between those who left the church and those who stayed in the church is whether one can know more of the truth than what is already known or not. Again, referring to the church as the children. So beginning in 1 John 2.29. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who does right has been born of him. Now we're in chapter 3. See what, the, see what love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is, is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet been revealed. What we do know is this. When he is revealed, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. And all who have this hope, will, hope in him will purify themselves just as he is pure. Because God, because God loves us, we are God's children. We're not to think of ourselves as God's children in, uh, think of ourselves as God's children only in future terms. We are God's children now. Nor should we think about those who believe that they know the truth, even if they're untruthful about it, as someone who might be reconciled with as God's children in the future. God loves them too. God has already given the Son for our sins, and Jesus has already shown us that death is defeated. Now we need to accept that God's love is bigger than knowledge and that, and that we have and that God loves everyone, whether we like it or not. John says, see what the Father has given us? We are called children of God, but so is everybody else called children of God. Others might not know Jesus, but they're still God's children. The future revelation is not something we alone have, but is one coming for everyone too, even if they don't want to hear it, even if they don't want to receive it. When Jesus comes again, John says, we will be like him. That is, we will aspire to be like Jesus and moving in this direction to be like him. But be assured, he will not be like us. God has made us in the image of God, which does not mean God is created in our image. This is a key point to the whole book of the Bible. We'll see this threaded throughout the rest of 1 John. When we think we know God in a full sense, we define God based upon ourselves and not the other way around. I think that one way of practicing this is to simply assume the best in people. I'm not sure where I just learned that dictum, always assume the best in people. Uh, but uh, doing that has sometimes come back to bite me, but I've never, ever regretted assuming the best in someone. We should assume the best in people because we're all God's children. Even those who would like to believe that God answers to them. God loves them unconditionally and unfairly also. John says that all who live in this hope will purify themselves just as Jesus is pure, which is to say that we stand in need of being purified now. We stand in need of forgiveness now. We are not in a state of true purity. 
Now, we should keep in mind that the religiosity of this time was wrapped up in a spirituality of purity and cleanliness. And believing that we could become more spiritually pure, we could ritually keep ourselves pure and spotless spiritually. Now, Jesus had a lot to say about that. I read a lot of the Gospels as Jesus speaking to that, especially about how those systems and social constructions of purity exploit people, or they fool people into believing that they're moral when they're not. The whole story of the Good Samaritan is a good example of that point. And maybe it's a little ironic to be talking about this on a day when we're celebrating baptisms in the church, since this is one of the big differences between Catholic and Protestant views of baptism, whether the ritual really, really cleanses you of original sin or not. What the Bible's saying here is that believing that you can become sinless is very often the beginning of sinfulness. We should not assume that in making the statement we are ourselves rising above sin either. The point is, we're all sinners. We all need to accept all other sinners as fellow sinners, as one of us including and especially those sinners who think they have no sin, which brings us back to the most important line in the first chapter. So going back to 1 John 1.8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now, where we go next, I think, is the most interesting aspect of 1 John, which is how we see the language of the Gospel of John unfold even more in this text. Specifically, John 3.16, which I think most who have grown up in the church know, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, and whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We all know that. Many of us know that. John 3.16. I had to memorize it as a child. Um, but next time we will see how that central thesis and sometimes what we miss about that thesis is drawn out in the early church as part of its central belief. Thank you for listening to Dangerous Christianity. For more information about how to get involved in the movement, how to contact Dr. Christopher Rodkey, or where to find information regarding his preaching itinerary, publications, or how to make a contribution to his ministry, please refer to the listed show notes. Dr. Rodkey, again, would like to thank all of his listeners for continuously supporting and tuning into his work and message. Thank you.